Hey, I'm Pastor Robert. Welcome to Riverside Friends Church. One of my favorite British philosophers and theologians is this dude named like G.K. Chesterton. And he said, if you don't like sentiment and symbolism, you don't like Christmas, go away and celebrate something else. <laughs> and today I want to talk about the sentiment and symbolism that is found in the concept of hope in the Bible. And so if you've ever read like the Bible and think like, oh, this is really hard. I don't understand this. And in particular, when we move beyond like individual stories to big chunks of scripture, it like becomes even harder. And frankly, like as a culture, um, the Christian culture in America has done a poor job of teaching people like how to read the Bible and how to understand it. <laughs> and so today, like I want to get down in the weeds a bit. We're going to get down like into some stuff. And this might feel like a little overwhelming at first. But here's the thing, for like the next seven minutes, I'm going to cover like a lot of scripture and you can see it as we go. It'll be like available on the screen for us to help us like kind of follow along. And there's this concept in scripture that starts in Deuteronomy and it carries through through the rest of the Bible. And so for the next six minutes and 45 seconds, we'll be looking at Deuteronomy through second Kings. So our video this morning that we looked at for Advent, it did a great job of showing like hope in Hebrew, in like the late prophets and into the New Testament. Um, but Joshua through 2 Kings is like this early prophet stuff. So in the Old Testament, there are three sections, right? Three sections in the Old Testament. The first one, you have like the Pentateuch. This would be the first five books of the Bible, Genesis through Deuteronomy. And then you have the prophets. This would be like everything from like Joshua through like Malachi. And then the way that our Bibles work is that right in the middle of those is the wisdom literature, kind of Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Psalm, Job is in the wisdom books. So it's kind of like a little bit out of order, uh, the way that like our English Bibles have this or like our Christian Bibles have it. But there's three sections to know about, like the Pentateuch, um, the prophets, and the wisdom. And what the video did is it did a good job of showing like hope, yakal, and kava. In the wisdom literature, Psalms, Proverbs, and in the late prophets, kind of looking at Isaiah onward, but it didn't do anything about like the early prophets, kind of the stuff that might be called the history book sometimes, this like Joshua through Second Kings. And so there's one more idea. There's an, one idea kind of more than any other that provided the people with a sense of hope kind of in this time frame. And this is the idea of having a king. We're going to look at Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 14 to 20. I got some of it pulled up here that we can see. You can follow along here. Here's what 17, 14 to 20 says. When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you, and you've taken possession of it and settled in it, and you say, let us set a king over us like all the nations around us. Be sure to appoint over you a king the Lord your God chooses. He must be from among your fellow Israelites. Don't place a foreigner over you, one who is not an Israelite. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you're not to go back that way. He must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. And when he takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law, taken from that of the Levitical priests. It is to be with him, and he is to read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of this law 
and these decrees and not consider himself better than the fellow Israelites <coughs> and turn from the law to the right or to the left, then he and his descendants will reign a long time over his kingdom in Israel. So what's happened here? Like, let's kind of unpack these verses just a little bit. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, God tells the people that when they enter the promised land, they will say, let us set a king, let us set a king over us like all the nations around us. And so we, uh, we see this up here in Deuteronomy 17, when you have come in the land and you say, I will set a king over me, you say that. Um, the people are saying that, right? God is saying that the people are going to say, give us a king. And God is saying that this king shouldn't have a large number of horses. That's a symbol of wealth. Or accumulate large amounts of gold and silver. That's actual wealth. And if you know your Bible, your alarm bells might be going off like, burnt, burnt, burnt. Wait, wait, wait. That's what Solomon did, right? Solomon accumulated all this gold and silver, and he took for himself many wives from all over the place. And yeah, that's exactly it. That's exactly it. All the kings that will serve from 1 Samuel through 2 Kings are judged based on this section here in Deuteronomy. And God tells the people in Deuteronomy that they will ask for a king to be set over them. So after Deuteronomy comes like the book of Joshua's, uh, Joshua's, Joshua, then Judges, and then Ruth, and then 1 Samuel. So let's jump ahead to Judges. Judges chapter 8. It says like, so the Israelites said to Gideon, Gideon has just defeated the Midianites. Uh, and the people come to Gideon and say, rule over us, you and your son and your grandsons. Also, for you have de delivered us out of the hand of Midian. And Gideon said to them, no, I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. So Gideon, he understands like the heart of God in a way that a lot of the Israelites miss. Gideon wants the Lord to be the king over Israel. And in Judges chapter 9, what happens is Gideon's son, Abimelech, becomes the local king of the region of Shechem. And it, it lasted three years. It was terrible. All the people were turned against him. There was chaos. Eventually, there's a battle where he tries to take this city. And as he's at the foot of this tower, like this lady drops a millstone on his head from up above. And um, it says his skull was fractured and yeah, that he tells his sword bearer, like, stab me so that way I die and a woman hasn't killed me or something. And and he does. And it's, then it says, like, the whole story ends with this kingship with the people experiencing a curse for their wickedness. It doesn't set out, like, this king of Shechem that's part of, like, Israel being very good. And so the book of Judges has, like, really strong words about a king that really just followed right in line with Deuteronomy. We see like Judges 17.6, 18.1, 19.1, and 21.25 all say the same thing. It says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. All the people did what was right in their own eyes. So the book of Judges, it's this book of like folktale heroes who conquer the enemies of Israel. But the people, they don't follow God. It says they don't follow God because they don't have a king. It says they don't follow because they don't have a king. And so when we jump ahead, so after Judges is the book of Ruth. And then it goes to 1 Samuel. So in 1 Samuel chapter 8, here's what it says, verses 4 to 7. All the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, you're old and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us such as all the other nations have. And this is a moment where we go, burnt, 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 alarm bells go off. And we can look back at Deuteronomy 17 and go, wait a minute. When God said, you'll take the promised land, you'll say, give us a king. 
And now here they are saying it. It's like a verbatim quote that God said, hey, in Deuteronomy, you're going to say this. Here they are saying it in 1 Samuel. And so like the verses go on. When they said, give us a king to lead us, that displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord. And the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. When the people ask for a king, what they're doing is they're rejecting God. God tells Samuel what will happen, and Samuel relays it to the people. And this is like, I'm not going to read out verses like eight or chapter 8, verses 10 to 18 or so, but it lists out all the evil things that the kings of Israel will do to the people. And it talks about, hey, they're, the kings are going to take the best people for themselves. They're going to take multiple wives. They're going to take the best men. They're going to turn them into soldiers. They're going to go off and fight battles. You'll lose your kids. They're going to hoard wealth. They're, you're not going to have wealth. And eventually, at the end of that, in verse 18, uh, God tells the people that when the kings have taken everything, the people will cry out and the Lord will not answer them in that day. And so for the rest of the history books, everything from like 1 Samuel chapter 8 to the end of 2 Kings, essentially like the next four books of the Bible, all tell exactly how this happens. How like Samuel was right and Deuteronomy was right and Gideon was right right up until the point that their kingdom is destroyed when they are conquered by the Babylonians and the nation of Israel is like destroyed. So that's like a very quick explanation, right? I told you seven minutes and I think I, I think I got there. That is the very quick explanation for like the role of the king in early prophetic literature, in particular how the people saw their hope in this. So let me put it like this way. Have you ever seen something like awful coming to somebody? because of something that they're doing. Like they're about to make just an awful, terrible choice and you know it's gonna end poorly, but they choose that bad choice anyways. Like, I was trying to think of how to like illustrate this. And I, I remembered a time when I was in college, my buddy had a car and the motor for the window, like you press the button, the window goes down, pull the button, the window goes up. Well, the motor was going out in that. So if you pushed it down, it would go down but if you tried to get it up, you had to like push your hand against it to kind of give it a little up. So one day he was at the drive-thru and he rolled it all the way down and he realized it wouldn't go up. So he brought it to our house and we took the panel off the door and we pushed the window up as, as he held like the button down for the motor. It wasn't dead. It just kind of lacked the power it needed without help. It needed help. The next day, the very next day, we were back at McDonald's and I saw him hit that button and he's ordering at the same time. He's hitting the button because he'd just gotten up there to the window. And I tried to say something. I tried to stop him. I'm like, like, stop it. Like, no, no, no. <clears throat> but it didn't work. He put it back all the way down. After he ordered his food, he's like, why are you yelling at me, man? I just pointed out his window. Like, your window's all the way down, dude. We got back home. I didn't help him fix it again. I just gave him the tools and I went and watched Netflix inside while he fixed it himself. The people of Israel, they said, if only we had a king, if only we had a king, then we could be like the other nations around us. Like they wanted to be powerful like the nations around them because at this time, they're a fairly weak nation. They're just kind of conquering things as they go. They're not, they're not, they don't have authority. That's what they want. And God warned them, but they didn't listen. They had made up their minds and they said, this is what I need. If only I had this, then my life will be better. 
And we can all fall into that trap. There's a difference between like hope and optimism. You can be optimistic anytime. Hope though can only occur for people in a rough position. People who have their lives together and everything's working out for them, they don't need hope. Their lives are good. Hope though is gritty. If you're here today, I don't know what your problems are. I know that there are marriages that are falling apart. There's broken relationships. There's grief that never seems to end. And I hope that there's something here for you this morning as we talk about hope. Because the Israelites, they base their hope on, on themselves and their ability to install a king so that they can be like their other nations. And their thinking is, if only, if only we had a king, then my life will be better. And the fact of the matter is they already had a king. God was their king, but they wanted something lesser. They wanted a human king. You know, what is your hope based on? You're here today. What's your hope based on? How can you know what your hope is based on? I got a question for you or a statement for you, an idea for you. When you think about how your life will get better, when you think about how your life will get better, that's where you find your hope. So if your thoughts are, if I had a new house, if I had a better job, if I had a job at all, if I had a new iPhone, if I had a boyfriend or a wife or whatever it is, if that's your thought, if you think, hey, in order for my life to be better, it would be great if I had a boyfriend, if I had an iPhone, if I had a better job. If that's your thought, then that's what your hope is based on. What's your hope based on today? Sorry. There we go. The people of Israel, when Jesus comes onto the scene, they've been taken captive by the Babylonians, by the Assyrians, by the Ptolemies, by, and now by Rome. They don't have a king. They don't control themselves. They're not independent. They don't, there's no sovereignty there. They're under the control of Rome. And when Jesus comes onto the scene, he starts his ministry with very strange words. Pull it up. Mark 1.15 Jesus comes and he says, the time has come, Jesus said, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the good news. That's strange words. The kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is not something that like Jesus made up. It is instead the continuation of God's desire to have a relationship with his people. Looking back to Deuteronomy, Judges, Samuel, God always wanted to be our God and we to be his people. And now the proclamation of Jesus Christ is that the kingdom where God is king has come near to the people. It's here today. The proclamation of Jesus is not that the time is coming, that it's far off, that it's still somewhere out there. No, it's that the time has come and it's here today. It's like an expectant child falling asleep on Christmas Eve and waking up to a tree surrounded by gifts. The time has come. It's not far off. It's here. And the people have hoped that they could install a king and then they could be like every other nation around them. And now Jesus, son of God, fully man, fully God has come and is proclaiming here, here's the kingdom, here's the king. And when we understand the sentiment of desiring a king and we understand the symbolism of hope in the kingdom, the proclamation of Jesus that the kingdom is here and now, what we find is actualized hope actualized hope. It's really here and available now. What does it mean to live in the kingdom? It means that our hope is in Jesus Christ. I don't know what you've put your hope in. I don't know what you were thinking about when you're like, hey, what's your hope in? But when we live in the kingdom of God, we put our hope in Jesus Christ. We've seen in the video that hope is not just about looking forward. 
That's optimism. Hope is not about optimism. Instead, hope is based on the faithfulness of God. Our hope is based on the faithfulness of God and the kingdom of God. The ultimate act of faithfulness from God is the resurrection. We base everything that we are on the reality of the resurrection. Christian hope is resurrection hope. God was killed on the cross, dead, buried. And yet God had the power to raise God from the dead. In the resurrection of God, we see not the eternity of heaven, but the future of the very earth on which his cross stands. It sees in Jesus the future of humanity for which he died. And a faith that only longs for heaven is grounded in optimism, not the biblically based hope. Optimism thing, optimism says things are going to be good. Hope, though, embraces the gritty reality that hope is only achieved through death. The resurrection cannot happen unless Jesus actually dies. Optimism says nobody has to die. Things can just get better. And at this intersection, hope must fight optimism. And those who hope in Christ can no longer put up with reality here on earth. We begin to suffer under it, to contradict it. Hope in this way is a protest. We don't wait optimistically for heaven, but we enter into the kingdom here and now and hope that God and Jesus is making the world around us new, that his kingdom is coming on earth as it is in heaven. See, I can remember when I was a nine-year-old boy and my grandpa took me and my brother out to Walmart and he gave us money and we went and bought Christmas presents for our family members. And for the first time, we were not just receivers of gifts, but we shared in the joy of giving. And to this day, like, I'm a terrible gift giver. Ask Sarah. She suffers through my terrible gifts year after year, birthday after anniversary after Christmas. Although, not in that order. Christmas after anniversary after birthday. That's the order that they happen in. I'm a terrible gift giver. I'm awful at it. So if you have an idea of a gift for Sarah, buy it. Bring it to me. I'll pay you for it. And as a boy, I can imagine that my gifts must have been awful even then. And I don't remember anything that I gave. I remember my grandpa taking me so that we could experience that as well, though. See, Christian hope is recognizing that the world as it is will not last. Change is coming and life will be different. And I mean this in the best possible way. When the church lives into the hope of God, we become a constant disturbance to the world around us. We become a constant disturbance to the status quo. Hope makes the church a source of, of continual impulses towards the realization of righteousness and freedom and humanity here in the light of the promised future that is to come. So like a child giving presents for the first time, we enter into hope not as receivers only, but as givers. Optimism is an adjective that describes the state of a person. But hope is a verb. It is an action resulting from the knowledge of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So hope propels us forward. Hope propels us forward into the intersection between the kingdom of God and the usurped kingdom of Satan. And there, with this hope, we find Jesus building his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. So we jump down to Paul in Colossians, because here's what he says. He says, we always thank God, the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus 
and the love you have for all people, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up in you in heaven, about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. So from these verses, we see that hope, that faith and love spring forward from hope. Hope produces faith and love. In a world that is dealing with like this awful loneliness epidemic, like even before COVID, right? Even before COVID, people were spending less and less time with others and more time alone. And even going, that goes all the way back to 2003 or so when they started tracking this. So about 16% of the people of the population or about one out of six people, one out of six Americans feels very connected to their community. One out of six. And the Surgeon General of the United States under President Biden says that the decline of, the decline of participation in church and religious groups is affecting individuals' health. Loneliness is like a mountain that separates us from the communities around us. It's this barrier, it's like, it's like a snow-packed mountain, inaccessible and unclimbable. And the church has a protest anthem against loneliness. The church has a protest anthem against loneliness. It's hope. Hope, when it is grounded in the resurrection, produces faith and love. So Sarah and I have an Advent devotional called The Advent We Actually Have. You can get it online for free. If you want a printed copy, uh, I can get you one, or Sarah can print them here. Let us know. And I want to read, the read a paragraph from the first day today. Today's the first day of Advent. Take a look at this. This is from um, The Advent We Actually Have. Here's what it says. As we sit amongst, as we sit amidst our shattered dreams of what was not possible or what came undone, of what we have lost or of what was, has never healed. It is difficult to know what hope is supposed to look like now. What are we hoping for exactly? How do we find real hope in the midst of all of our disappointment? How do we stay awake to that kind of possibility Advent asks of us? Especially when we no longer have the privilege of childish dreams of sugar plums and gumdrops. We have been awakened to the reality of pain and suffering. We no longer crave niceties or easy promises. We want the really real. We need true hope. And the long arc of God's love will redeem and make, remake the whole world and us in it. Hope then is a function of struggle. It is the realization of our limitations or of our lack of agency or the inability for us to save ourselves and the ones we love. This kind of hope is not a wish list sent to Santa Claus. Advent hope is gritty. It shirks all false optimism. It is hope as protest, hope in the face of impossibilities. As writer Barbara Brown Taylor says, whether it is a seed in the ground, a baby in the womb, or Jesus in the tomb, hope starts in the dark. Martin Luther King in his I Have a Dream speech said that with this faith, we will hew from mountains of despair, stones of hope. And our verse says that hope bears fruit and grows throughout the whole world. And as much as God calls us to faithfulness, God calls us to fruitfulness. And verse 10 says that when we live a life worthy of the Lord, pleasing him in every way, we bear fruit in every good work. So today, as long as we, 
as we like long to take the mountains of despair that isolate us, as we long to take these mountains and hew from them stones of hope on which the gospel will go and grow and be fruitful and multiply to the very ends of the earth. It starts in the darkness. It starts as a protest against the despair and loneliness of our world. And so whatever darkness you have today, whatever's going on inside you, whatever you got going on in your life, whether it's broken relationships, whether it's a a marriage that's falling apart, whether it's whatever it is, I don't know. The light of God and the hope of the world, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is stronger than whatever darkness you have. The light of God and the hope of the world, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is stronger than whatever darkness you have. See, the candle of hope that we light at Advent is not overtaken by darkness. Your hope, the light of Christ, is stronger. And you are invited. No, you're called. You are called. Any hope that wells up in you is not meant for you alone, but it is meant to be shared with others. As you go from this place this week, as you close this video down and go on about your day, I hope you can learn to live in that. That hope is not for those who have life figured out. Hope is for those who don't. It is a gritty protest against the world and the life that we've always known. It's us saying the way things have been are not the way that they will be. It's saying that I'm going to trust not in my own self of what I can do or in a, in a belief that things are just going to get better. It's, it's a hope in biblical sense says the resurrection of Jesus is real and he's coming back and he's building a, a world here, a kingdom here in which he rules. I can trust in that. We hope in that. That's what Advent hope is all about. It's this coming this recognition that Jesus Christ came originally and he came back from the dead and now he's coming again. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, very thankful that we have this history that we can look back on to go, yes, he is faithful. Will he fail me now? No, he won't. So Lord, would you continue to show us For those of us living gritty lives, for those of us in the heartache and the broken, would you show us your hope? Would you shine your light like an Advent candle into our hearts that we might see you? We turn this over to you now. In your name, amen.